What is the one thing apart from which it is impossible to live the Christian life? That's the question I'd like to answer this morning and this evening. Before I do that, although I can't see you very well, it's very bright up here. How many were here at Calvary 1961 or earlier? Would you stand if you're able? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Jean, bless your heart, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Approximately twenty of us. Now, I just thought I would ask that question so you could see that puts me in the context of the generation that represented Calvary Baptist Church in the corner of Center and John. When Jean Hankelman sitting here was... I believe you are a Sunday school superintendent, but I know you are the mastermind behind our famous memory work program here at Calvary, for which I am deeply grateful. And as a result of that, the book I'm going to preach from this morning has been a favorite that I have memorized, verse by verse, the book of Ephesians. It speaks on the wealth, the walk, and the warfare of the Christian. We're just going to take a little wee snippet this morning from verses 18 to 21 in Ephesians chapter 5. I would like to also say that uh, your pastor and I go back 44 years. Uh, You may wish to ask him his claim to fame starting back 44 years ago because of a certain Sunday school teacher he had, and I'll leave it for him to answer that. But also, at that same time, my wife Maria is is with me today, and Rick's grandmother, Maud Loughran, they uh, co-taught and headed up our kindergarten department, which was four- and five-year-olds, and they had an average attendance of 130. And Rick's grandma at that time was a... Well, she seemed like an old lady to me, so she had to be at least 90 then, but I, I think it was around 70 years of age. And she was a master teacher. So Rick gets it very, very honestly from his grandmother at least, as well as other members of his family. It is always a a great privilege to come back home because I'm so grateful for roots. And one of the great roots that I have is not only a godly Christian family, but also a great church, Calvary Baptist here in Oshawa. It was an historic day when King Solomon dedicated the magnificent temple of Mount Moriah to the Lord. The Shekinah glory came and filled the Holy of Holies of Solomon's temple. What a marvelous object lesson to every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord when the Old Testament was dedicated to him. It says in 1 Kings chapter 8, When the priest came out of the holy place, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not even continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. Just as the Shekinah glory filled the Holy of Holies in that day, so too the Holy Spirit desires above all else to fill the believer today. Why is that so? Because 
we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is no longer a physical building. It is now flesh and blood. And so I pose this question to you this morning. Does the glory of the Lord fill your temple? Paul commands us here in Ephesians chapter 5, let the Holy Spirit fill and literally control you. Does the glory fill your temple or this morning are you filled with the cares of this world? And does the self-life take preeminence over that which rightfully belongs to God? So the question is just what is the spirit-filled life apart from which it is impossible to live the Christian life? Is it normal or is it just something that is a super addition that is unattainable to the average Christian? Do you think that God intended for you this morning to be filled with the Holy Spirit? At Pentecost, when Peter challenged the same crowd that had just crucified Jesus a few weeks before, and he challenged them to repent after presenting to them Jesus Christ crucified, it says that the promise of the Holy Spirit is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. So in this message and this evening, the best half is this evening, that's called an advertisement, I would like to answer three questions about Paul's command to be filled with the Spirit. I'll answer only one this morning, Lord willing, two this evening. What does it mean for me to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Number two, what is the means by which I can be filled with the Holy Spirit? And three, what will being filled with the Holy Spirit look like in my life? Now, before we answer those questions, let's put it in context. It all begins with what it means to live the Christian life because Paul had said earlier when he began this second section in Ephesians, I said the wealth of the believer, which is the first section, chapter 1, 2, and 3. Then chapter 4, verse 1 kicks off the second section, the walk of the believer. And then in the last part of chapter 6, the warfare of the believer. In starting this section... Ephesians 4.1, Paul said, Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. You see, being filled with the Spirit is absolutely essential for living the Christian life. Apart from the energizing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we will never be able to walk in humility, We will never be able to walk in unity. We will never be able to be separated from the world, the flesh, and the devil. We will never even be able to walk in love and light or wisdom. You see, attempt to live the Christian life by any other means, and it will end up either in fleshly legalism on the one hand, or a desire to control others on the other, neither of which is associated with being filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul here in verse 18 of chapter 5 uses an illustration, an interesting illustration to draw a deliberate parallel between a person who is filled with the Spirit and one who is filled with wine. And he says this, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation or excess, but be filled with the Spirit. 
Now let me say up front here that the issue here is not abstinence, but it's excess. To get drunk is to become intoxicated. It is a word that Homer and his Gilead used where he is describing the stretching of a bull's hide, which in order to make it more elastic, it was soaked or it was intoxicated with fat. Hence, to be drunk is to be soaked with wine. I guess that's where they get the term sloshed from. I find the meaning of the word dissipation or the word excess equally fascinating. Not that it matters, but it's the Greek word asotia. It is the opposite of the word salvation, which means to liberate. So when one is intoxicated with spirits, rather than being a liberated person, that person has really become an enslaved person. Because the word he uses here is the exact opposite. Have you observed a person who's intoxicated? Well, first he deliberately chooses to drink intoxicating spirits. Then he drinks more and more until he is drunk. And at this point, his behavior changes. There are those who are timid when sober, but become belligerent and pugnacious when they're drunk. There are those who are as hard as nails when they are sober, but they're sentimental and tearful when drunk. There are those who are congenial and friendly when sober, but morose and surly when drunk. Drunkenness can turn a moral man into an immoral man, and he can make a filthy-minded man sing hymns that he learned at his mother's knee or argue about religion. You see, drink turns a person into someone else. It can distort his conduct and certainly degrade his character. Drink temporarily transforms a person's personality. But there is no such thing as permanent intoxication. The person who is drunk on Saturday night is sober on Sunday morning, albeit with a hangover. If he wants to remain intoxicated, he needs another and another filling, which leads to deterioration and destruction both morally and physically. Now, with an understanding of that analogy, it's Paul that chose that metaphor. I'd like to answer the opposite of that or something that is similar to that in many ways, being filled with the Spirit. And so we ask this question, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? The person and work of the Holy Spirit is a much misunderstood doctrine today and has resulted in much confusion and division in the church of Jesus Christ. I intend here only to touch on what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He says again, verse 18, Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill and control you. New Living Translation. Now, why would Paul contrast being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit? There are certainly similarities in both conditions. For example, the pers- a person is under a power outside himself, whether it be spirits or the Spirit. A person is fervent. It's also a similarity. On the day of Pentecost, for example, the fervency produced by the Holy Spirit caused others to mistakenly think that Peter and the apostles were drunk. Another similarity is the person's walk is affected. 
both physically and morally. But there are also sharp contrasts between the two. For example, in drunkenness, there is dissipation and debauchery, whereas the Spirit's filling produces fruitfulness. In drunkenness, there is a loss of self-control. But the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. A believer who is filled with the Spirit is never transported outside himself in ecstasy where he can no longer control his actions, whether that's physical ecstasy or so-called spiritual ecstasy. Now, it is important to understand when we're talking about being filled with the Spirit that there are ministries of the Holy Spirit that are once and for all sovereign acts of God. And these ministries of the Spirit, which I'm listing now, happen at the moment that a person accepts Christ as their personal Savior. On February 6, 1956, as a 12-year-old boy, these things happened to me instantaneously. I became indwelt by the Spirit of God. John 14, 16, Jesus said, I will pray the Father, he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. I received at that moment the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. At that moment I was also sealed by the Holy Spirit. In verse 13 of chapter 1 of this same book in Ephesians, it says, In him you also trusted, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And it moves right into the next thing that happens at the moment of conversion, and that is the Holy Spirit is the guarantee or deposit. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. There's another thing that happens at the moment we accept the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's a sovereign act of God, and that is the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. There is one more, and it's called the anointing, but it's not really the anointing of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit himself is the anointing. And we receive that anointing which is the Holy Spirit himself at the moment of conversion. 1 John 2.27 says, The anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things. These are one-time sovereign acts of God that take place at the moment of conversion And they are not what we are referring to, or Paul is here in Ephesians. The ones that I just listed are irreversible, and they are irrevocable. However, the filling of the Holy Spirit is different. It is conditional because it depends on our cooperation with that Holy Spirit who is now living in us, who has sealed us, who is our guarantee, who has baptized us into the body of Christ and is the sealing himself. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you are transformed into another kind of person. 
you begin to exhibit the loveliness of Christ and the fruit that the Spirit of God produces in your life. It becomes evident in your walk and in your talk that something has really happened to you. People sit up and take notice that you've been with Jesus. Furthermore, this Holy Spirit's fullness and filling is not permanent like the other ones that I listed. Literally, Paul is saying, I want you to be continually being filled with the Spirit. Or be constantly, moment by moment, being controlled by the Spirit. Now, just to give you a little lesson on what the tense and the meaning of those verbs, be continually filled with the Spirit. First of all, it's a command. A believer is commanded to go on continually being filled with the Spirit. It is continuous, involving a day-by-day moment submission to the Holy Spirit's control. It is in the present tense. It's not just something that happened in the past or you're hoping for in the future as we submit to Him. We do not rely on past feelings or future feelings. We rejoice, yes, in past, and we hope for future things because of this ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit. And it's plural in number. Therefore, it is something to be enjoyed, not just by a select few Christians, but by everyone who's a child of God. It's interesting that it's in the passive voice. Therefore, it is not something that you do for God, but is something that you allow him to do in you, for you, and through you. And it's something that's instrumental, meaning that the Holy Spirit is the divine agent that is doing this filling. You see, it's the entirely the work of the Holy Spirit, but he will only work in our lives through willing submission. So we are to keep on consciously and continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, being filled with the Spirit is the most important command, I believe, for a person, for a believer to obey. Now, I'm very much aware that the mission of the individual and the mission of the church is the Great Commission. I'm very much aware that the great commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the great commandment and the great commission. Two extremely important commands. But think about it for a moment. Neither the great commandment nor the great commission can be fulfilled unless a person is filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's why I suggest that it's the most important command for a believer to obey. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit one moment and grieve the Holy Spirit the next. When you grieve the Holy Spirit... Yes, we need to confess our sin, to claim the cleansing of the blood of the Lord Jesus, and to seek a fresh filling. And he does that because when we confess our sins, he is faithful, isn't he? And just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But to disobey this command, you really cannot obey any other command as a believer. And just as the most important command for the unbeliever is to trust Jesus Christ as Savior for salvation, likewise the most important command for the believer to obey is this one. I believe to resist the filling and control of the Holy Spirit is flagrant disobedience. And to deny and minimize the importance 
is to stand rebelliously against the clear teaching of God's word. And so, yes, even though we are indwelt, baptized, sealed, anointed, received the gift of the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion, we will live by the flesh in spiritual weakness, in spiritual retardation, and frustration and defeat, unless this command is obeyed. Now, it is vital that we understand the meaning of the word here for fill, because there are different words. This particular word is one of three different words that are used for the word fill in our English Bible. This particular one, however, emphasizes taking possession of or to totally pervade or control the person's life. First of all, we must understand what this word fill does not mean. The Holy Spirit does not fill our hearts like water fills a bottle or a glass. Our our hearts are not receptacles to be emptied in order that the Holy Spirit might fill us. God takes every part of what he made us, this beautiful, unique person that he made you to be today, and he simply wants to pervade us. He wants to totally take control of us. So we don't get rid of the person that God made us to be. Maybe a couple of illustrations will help. Wind filling a sail and thus carrying a ship along. In other words, to be filled thus, a a sail with wind, by the Holy Spirit is to be moved along in our Christian life by God himself. By the same dynamic, really, that the writers of Scripture were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit because they were totally permeated and controlled by the Holy Spirit. We are responsible to raise our sails so the Holy Spirit can fill them and carry us along. We certainly can't do it in our own strength. Another thing that might help us to illustrate it a bit is the idea of permeation. Uh, Like they preserved meat several years ago before they had freezing. They would, you would preserve meat by having it salted. And the salt would enter into every part of that meat, permeate it. And so also the Holy Spirit of God is to permeate every spiritual pore and cell of our body with his divine presence. Another one is, I mentioned, control. It's, it's the idea of being totally controlled. We can find some examples of this using some metaphors. For example, a person who is filled with sorrow in John 16, 6, when it says, sorrow has filled your heart. That is to be no longer under their own control, but totally controlled by the emotion of fear. In the same way, someone who is filled with fear in Luke chapter 5 and verse 26, immediately when the paralytic was healed, another example, they were all amazed and they glorified God and it says they were filled with fear. A person can also be filled or controlled by anger. When Jesus healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, the Pharisees were filled with rage. 
or even Satan can fill and control a person. Ananias, of Ananias, Peter said this, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? In each case, the spirit is no longer, the person is no longer under his own control, but is under control of something else that is dominating him or her. And that's the essence. Do you get the idea of what it means by those examples? So to be filled with the Spirit is not to have the Spirit somehow progressively added to your life until you're full of Him. In fact, it is to be so permeated by Him as to be under His total denomination and carried along by Him. So Luke said this, Jesus being full, this is Luke 4, When Jesus had the Spirit of God come upon him at his baptism, and then he was driven, literally, driven or led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness. Listen to what it says in Luke chapter 4. Jesus being full, same word, full of the Holy Spirit, this is what prepared him to be led by the Spirit up into the wilderness where he was tempted. Jesus submitted himself entirely to the Spirit's control. And because he was full of the Holy Spirit, he was controlled by the Holy Spirit. And it says, interestingly, that if you pop down to verse 14 of Luke chapter 1, when the wilderness temptation was finished, he came back in the power of the Holy Spirit. So do you see the divine order here? We will never experience the power of the Holy Spirit upon our lives until we are first filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit who will then lead us into victory over temptation and sin and consequently empower us for service. I'd like to read that one statement one more time. I believe it is up there. We will never experience the power of the Holy Spirit upon our lives until we are first filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit, who will then lead us into victory over temptation and sin and consequently empower us for service. That's the divine order. Parenthetically, let me say, we will either be controlled by the Spirit for power or we will be controlled by the flesh to become helpless victims of the world and the devil. Because in Galatians chapter 5, Paul speaks of a war or a tug of war that is going on inside everyone who is a believer. We've got the flesh that is pulling one way. We've got the spirit that is pulling the other. And these two are warring one against the other. There will always be contrary one to the other. So you are not an abnormal Christian. In fact, you are very, very normal if you're experiencing this tug of war. But as you submit to the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, then the world system and the devil cannot penetrate and touch you. Too many Christians today are trying to find a demon under every rock, and they're concerned about the world system, when all you need to be concerned about is making sure that the Holy Spirit is in control of you by submitting to him. And then they, you're going to have the fiery darts of the wicked one hurled against you, but that shield of faith, which is the Holy Spirit, in obedience to him, is what's going to protect you. 
So the issue is not dealing primarily with the world or the devil. The issue primarily is the flesh. And it's the spirit that's warring against your flesh and vice versa. So just give up and give in and let the Holy Spirit be in control. I find this also very interesting. I'm on a bit of a tangent here, guys, so don't worry. Back in Genesis chapter 3, as a result of sin, when sin came in through, do you want me to say Eve or Adam? There's more ladies here than men, so we will not take a vote. Or we lose. I mean, after all, when Eve sinned, she blamed Adam. When Adam sinned, he blamed the serpent. The serpent didn't have a leg to stand on, as you know. But as a result of that sin, it said Eve, in addition to increase in pain and childbearing, your desire, the Old English says, your desire will be to your husband. I used to think that was a pretty good deal. But unfortunately, the Hebrew word doesn't quite mean that. Because we go over to the same Hebrew word in Genesis chapter 3 when it speaks of Cain when he sinned. And it said, sin desires to control you. The consequence of sin in the life of Eve is that from then on her desire would be to control her husband. Now ladies, I'm not finished, so relax. As a result of sin coming into the life of Adam, in addition to the thorns and thistles and so on, it said your desire will be to be a despotic ruler or controller of your wife. And that's why we have so much abuse of women and children around the world today. It's the result of sin in men that think they're some kind of a macho, despotic, I'm in control around here, I'm boss around here. Now, I want to leave you with this. It's not part of my script, because this is worth the price of admission. The word control can only be associated in a spirit-filled believer with one other word. It's the word Holy Spirit. You see, the fruit of the Spirit, like bookends, you have love on the one end, you have self-control on the other. Whenever you see someone, whether it's within a church, whether it's within a family, whether it's within any other relationship, where one individual is seeking to control another individual, you know the Holy Spirit is not at work. Because a human being who is controlling another person is contrary to Scripture. I believe that if we would understand that truth, it would transform our churches, it would transform our homes, because people would really understand what it means to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Whenever I take control, that's the flesh. And that's the result of the fall. For example, to be filled with the Spirit, maybe another illustration... I forgot to bring a glove today. I was going to have a glove. But I've got a jacket on. And as long as I'm wearing this jacket, it's got some power. I mean, you should see my rippling muscles. 
But if this, if this jacket is off, it just goes limp, doesn't it? There's, there's no strength in that jacket by itself. None whatsoever. But as long as I'm wearing the jacket, then it can do whatever I want it to do. And similarly, when we are filled with the Holy, without the Holy Spirit, we're just limp. We're just wet dishcloths. We're weaklings. But when the Holy Spirit of God fills us and we take on the Holy Spirit, then it's a power to behold. We can accomplish no more without being filled with the Holy Spirit than my jacket can accomplish without me wearing it. Functionally, the flesh produces absolutely nothing of spiritual value. And when the church of Jerusalem wanted men to free the apostles for the work of prayer and ministry of the word, they chose men like Stephen, it says, who were full, same word, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit detaches us from the desires and the standards and the objectives and the the fears of the world system. And it gives us a vision of God and what he is up to. And it gives us a desire as well as the power to get in on it. All through the book of Acts, we see men like Peter, like Paul, like Barnabas, the disciples being filled with the Holy Spirit in this way. And we can see what happened in the early church, right? It exploded. Not because of anything they did, but because of what the Holy Spirit was doing through those who were willing just to surrender. Only if we would grasp the truth of this in our homes. Now this message is not about submission, but let me kind of wrap up with this kind of an illustration on submission. Joseph Son, T-S-A-N, some of you that are old enough will remember he was the great Romanian pastor under the Ceausescu regime, and he had suffered severely. He was really the leader of the evangelical church in Romania. And at one point, they were going to take his life. And he said, uh, just before you do, he said, first of all, i got no problem because I'm going to be with the Lord. That's a graduation. But I just want you to know if you take my life, it's only going to fan the flame of the spread of, evangel- or the, spread of the gospel and people being saved. So they, they spared his life. But he had opportunity to speak in different churches in Europe and North America. One pastor shared this with me that when he was visiting his church, and it was a very large church in the United States, Joseph Son said to the pastor after he had this series of messages, he said, you know, pastor, he says, one thing I've noticed about the Christians in North America is that they are very committed people. The pastor looked at him. And under his breath said, I wish. He said, did you say we're very committed? He says, that's exactly what I said. So then the pastor said, well, thank you for the observation. He says, no, I wasn't complimenting you or the church in North America. He said, you're the one whose English is your mother tongue. It's your first language. But he says, have you noticed that the word commitment in your normal vocabulary, 
has replaced an older English word which you don't seem to use anymore. We talk about being committed to this and committed to that. I must admit, I do too. I mean, our commitment to the church, our commitment to marriage, our commitment to whatever. But that's not the real Bible word. The Bible word is not commitment. The Bible word is submission. When I commit myself to something, I still have a measure of control. But when I submit, what I'm doing is voluntarily giving myself to another in order that God might be glorified. It was a message that I preached last Sunday at Pine Grove Baptist Church and the Sunday before that on husbands and wives. Because it says here that we're to submit submit ourselves one to another in the fear of God. And men just love the next verse. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Do you want to know what that verse really means? It doesn't mean what you think. I've got to have another commercial for tonight. Nowhere in the Bible is a woman, is a wife commanded to obey her husband. Now, for those of you 20 that were here when I was here 50 years ago, I have not become a heretic. I can promise you. I'm as conservative, if not more conservative, in my theology today than I was 50 years ago because I understand more. But that is not what the word submit means. Essentially, submission is one equal, voluntarily, giving himself or herself to another equal in order that God might be glorified. And that's why this says submitting to one another in the fear of God. We'll expand on that this evening. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, this is a truth that really can only be made known to us by the Spirit of God himself. We can preach about it. But we don't have to beg for it. Because for those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is already living inside of us. We can never have any more of the Holy Spirit than we have at the moment of conversion. Yes, the Holy Spirit can have more of us. That's what submission is about. You have gifted us, you're indwelling us, you're sealing us, you've guaranteed everything that we look forward to. You are the anointing, but you've commanded us to continually go on being filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so we ask... Holy Spirit, that you would take this word because it's you and you alone who can apply it to the deepest part of our being and transform us so that we would literally be intoxicated, that we would be inebriated, that we would be indwelt beyond just the presence of the Holy Spirit But being filled with the Holy Spirit, follow your leading into lives of powerful service. 
so that many will come to Christ. Do that work in our hearts. And with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I would just ask that if the Spirit of God has spoken to you at all in this message, would you let him just do that work by giving him permission right now? It's being filled with the Spirit is an act of obedience. Just say, Lord, here I am. Understand this, that when you submit to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, when I do, the Spirit of God will fill you, control you. But be ready for this. Like the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be led or driven by that Holy Spirit who is filling you into spiritual warfare. But as you are filled, you will have victory in that warfare so that out of it, you will be a powerful instrument in the hands of God. Being filled, we will be led into victory so that our lives can be powerful for him. Amen. God bless you.